Hey everyone, and welcome to the Gaudi Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Pazutamaka. Today on the podcast, we will be speaking with Ishti, our international editor, about the crisis in Ukraine and some of the ramifications that is having across the world. We'll then speak with Daniel, who's our sports editor, about some things that are happening in the world of sports, uh, especially uh, events that are happening in relation to Ukraine. Um, it's a really good podcast. I'm excited uh, to talk to those guys, and I hope you have a, a good time listening. Hey everyone, I am here with Ishti, our international editor here at the Gaudi. Uh, he's on to talk about the current situation in Ukraine, um, kind of the reactions of different countries and the international community, and kind of where we go from here. So thank you so much for being on. Thank you very much, Josh. I really appreciate being on. Uh, yeah, it's uh, it's a good opportunity to talk about probably the most... Uh, well, definitely the most recent and probably in the last decade, the most prominent conflict in, in Europe. I mean, and when I say conflict, I really mean war, because uh, it is essentially a war in between two countries, which has been going on for uh, more than two weeks now, if I'm right, uh, since the 24th of February. And um, yeah, it evolved into basically a full-scale military confrontation uh, in between Ukraine and Russia. The current situation is very much still alarming. Um, it's clearly obvious that the main aim of the Russian army is to seize major Ukrainian cities, uh, albeit they were not really successful in that, surprisingly. Um, so... Even though they managed to capture some cities and some strategically important locations, the resistance of the Ukrainian army and uh, everyone fighting besides the Ukrainian army is uh, quite quite outstanding. And I think no one expected that, honestly. Um, so uh, if it's because uh, of uh, the president hugely motivating them or it is because their patriotic feelings toward their, their homelands or is it because uh, the equipment supplies from, from some uh, Western countries, uh, we don't really know for sure, but it's definitely caught everyone by surprise. Yeah, most definitely. Thank you uh, for kind of summing that up. Uh, another big, I think, important step in the in the in the conflict, and especially how it's unfolded, I think, was the the initial shock that almost everyone uh, in the West felt, in, in a way that um, was just, I think, the reaction of the international community was just so big in a way that wasn't really expected. I mean, you talk about financials, talk about even sports, everything uh, was kind of making Russia almost an outsider in that system. So, Ishii, maybe you could tell us a little bit about how, how that went down and what kind of, what pressure that's putting on the Russian uh, economy and the Russian government. Yes, definitely. I mean, to start off with, uh, just like you've mentioned or, or uh, uh, said, um, it the attack was a surprise to everyone, even like politicians, political analysts, even to my myself, actually, because I've just published an article on why Russia will not invade Ukraine two days before uh, two days before the 24th of February when they did. Um, you can read it on the Gaudi's website, but it's not relevant anymore. I mean, the foreign policy objectives I'm listing in an article are still relevant, but no one not me, nor much smarter and more expert people than me thought that this is going to happen. Um, the obvious consequences or uh, repercussions from uh, the European Union or the NATO, however, were as, as people could expect it, you know, because uh, since Ukraine is not a member of the EU and NATO just yet, 
um, and I don't think it will soon, uh, but that's just my personal opinion. Um, sanctions were the obvious way to go. Obviously, they are the hardest they've ever been. So the average Russian people in bigger cities can already feel it from very petty things such as they don't have Netflix anymore or McDonald's has announced that it's uh, closing its branches in Russia and so the corporate world's responses uh, up onto serious personal sanctions against politicians and general economic sanctions uh, all happen and they're all um, the worst they've ever been. So from then on, the question is not just uh, what's going to happen uh, in Ukraine, what the solution will be to this war, will peace be made? It's also, obviously, the Ukrainian economy is damaged very, very badly, but it's also a question to what extent the Russian economy could sustain it, because uh, they've pretty much started to be excluded even from the SWIFT, that's that's the international banking system, uh, mostly the, the European Union and other Western countries uh, established. Um, and because of that, uh, the branches of the Russian Sberbank, I completely butchered the pronunciation, I think, but it had to close its branches in Europe. So um, the consequences for Russia are serious, plus on a sort of like personal consequence based on my own readings of news in, in, in Russia and things like that. I don't think Putin or, or the Russian leaders prepared the Russian public for such a long confrontations and um, dead bodies arriving back home. I don't think they've they've actually prepared their own people to this and so it caught them by surprise as well because we obviously in a war it's very hard to say how many casualties it has every casualty is a lot even one single bar uh if we take like the average in between what the ukrainians are saying from russian and ukrainian casualties and what the russians are saying about the same it's kind of it, it, it's sort of uh in between i guess i i can only make a guess but obviously uh, they're trying to play these numbers in their own favors. So these are the main consequences. It's going to have a way bigger impact uh, than pretty much pretty much what's now. Um, and the saying that if there's a conflict, in this case a war, between Ukraine and Russia, uh, it's going to it's going to be the European Union who will also suffer. That is that is still almost true. Yeah, thank you for clarifying and just making that a little bit more clear for the audience. Um, I guess the question is, um, a lot of uh, media and a lot of um, some politicians, but not as many, have been talking about this idea of a no-fly zone, which uh, would be like, okay, NATO comes in and secures the skies, and that means Russians can't drop bombs, and etc. And um, I think that's uh, an admirable thing, but I think I, I, it might be good to clarify what that would entail. Because, I mean, we talk about closing skies would it probably entail shooting on Russian planes, etc. So, I mean, that would almost be like kind of a beginning of a declaration of war against Russia, in a way, if NATO does get involved. So, I guess my question is, is there a point where further escalation is merited? And if so, what would that look like? And, you know, if not, what are, what are like, 
what are some further steps countries can take? Yes. Yeah, no, thanks, Josh. It's a really intriguing question, Josh. And uh, just like you, a lot of people talking or at least implying the possibility or like to talk about the possibility of a third world war when reviewing this. Um, to answer the first part of your question, closing Ukrainian as like closing Ukraine's airspace by NATO forces essentially means that NATO will have to shut down any non-NATO forces uh, in that airspace. So, and since NATO countries, it's not in their interest to uh, take part in this conflict, I personally do not think they will do that. Um, because they don't want, like that would essentially, if it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be a direct declaration of war towards Russia, yeah. but it would still view, it, it, it is basically like siding with Ukraine more than they right now. So obviously they're doing a lot to support and obviously, they're, as I mentioned before, they're sanctioning Russia uh, and supporting Ukraine in many ways, uh, including uh, giving them arms or uh, aid or financial help, uh, all, all sorts of things like that. Uh, but formally, Ukraine is not a member of NATO. It's not a member of the European Union. Therefore, legally... The members of these institutions don't have to help by any means. Some do to a more extent, some do to a lesser extent, but it's up to their their individual decisions as, as countries. And for that reason, I don't think it's going to escalate further. It's already very bad, which is happening. And like some pictures, if you just look up any any websites, like they're just shocking and and sad. And there's no justification why why this has happened. So, but 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 I still don't think other countries would be involved further. Yeah, and I guess it would just entail if if Russia did take bigger steps as an invading NATO country in the area, so one of the Baltic states, uh, anything like that, then we would probably see NATO get involved. But until then, probably not. Yeah. yeah. Right. Okay. So um, I guess we have a few more minutes. We want to talk, chat a few, little bit about uh, what is kind of the end result, what is going to happen in the end in, in, in European history. Um, will Putin kind of continue westward into Ukraine and, you know, out? You know, once he takes the major cities, will he just take over the entire country? Will he try to establish some sort of rule? Will he get turned back? I mean, you know, these are some important questions. So maybe just let us know what, what you're thinking about that. So historically, Russia's main aim always has been to uh, have Ukraine on their side, to have it as a sort of allied but still buffer zone in between themselves and NATO or EU or, I mean, since NATO pretty much serves the defense of the Europe, collective defense of the European Union, it's in this case, they are essentially the same. They're, of course, not, but when, in terms of defense, they are. So Russia has historically always wanted Ukraine to be in between the two. Uh, and it has been Putin's aim for a while now. And that's why what happened, like, that's... That's why they started applying military pressure when pre-invasion they started to surround Ukraine with 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 arms and and their armies and their and their forces. Um, 
if, and this is based on me doing a very small amount of research, but based on what I've read and heard, um, Russia, so they cannot sustain any sort, they would not be able to sustain any sort of rule in a country consisting of 44 million people. Like, the Russian army is big, but it's not big enough to consume like an entire territory of, of Ukraine, you know, in, in, in any case. So their main objective, in my opinion, is to sustain the crisis and try to pressure EU, NATO and Ukraine to let each other go and Ukraine to side more with Russia. Obviously, this is very counterproductive and it, it is it is not going to, it's not likely to achieve its aim. I mean, who wants to, you know, like if I'm attacked by a person, I don't want to be his friend after that. So it's essentially the same. Um, that's why it is really hard to say what the consequences will be. Um, and if, when there's a solution going to be and where like if if the peace talks are leading to to any any resolutions that's that's very hard to say and that's that's up for future and even much more uh expert people than me can't really say anything yes indeed well thank you so much ishti for coming on and telling us just the current situation and providing some of your thoughts it was really quite helpful thank you thank you very much josh thank you right hey everyone i'm here with daniel the Gaudi's sports editor, and we're really happy he's on. He's going to talk a little bit about some headlines in the world of sport that he's been covering, especially in relation to the Ukraine crisis and how uh, international sports organizations have been responding, and as well as some football news around that as well. So thank you and welcome to the podcast, Daniel. Thank you very much. Uh, yeah, so um, I think it's, it's probably most pertinent to just, uh, say right from the get-go get is that um, the article that we released uh, about um, uh, FIFA and football's response to uh, this whole uh, crisis is uh, pretty out of date, and it has been for a few days now. So I do apologise to everyone who, who thought they were reading that article and uh, getting new information. They weren't at all. Uh, so what's happened since is that, uh, just to cover the FIFA side of things, um, Russia have been removed from uh, all competitions, uh, sport, uh, club and international. Uh, I think Poland have been given a bye in World Cup qualifying. This was a, a big dispute that was happening because... Um, Poland and the Czech Republic were potentially, I think Poland were going to play Russia and Czech Republic had a, a path towards playing um, Russia in World Cup qualifying and they were refusing to do so. And clearly that was going to put FIFA in a bit of an awkward position because if a team refuses to fulfil a picture, then they forfeit it. But yeah. for them to give Russia a buy into the World Cup would <laughs> yeah, be obviously not, not a great look. <laughs> completely, completely unacceptable. So um, yeah, so they FIFA have now followed in UEFA's footsteps, which was to ban all Russian clubs from uh, competition and for Russian uh, teams who are playing Russian clubs to be given a buy. So for example, RB Leipzig, who are a German club, were uh, given a buy against uh, Spartak Moscow. That's uh, one example of what happened. Um, so that's the FIFA side of things. That's the more international. Uh, in the UK specifically, and with Chelsea, uh, things have also changed quite drastically. So since the article was written, 
um, Charles, uh, Roman Abramovich has been sanctioned. That's the big change. And what that means is that Chelsea, as an asset of Roman Abramovich, have also been frozen. Mm. Their accounts are frozen. They, okay. are, um, they are currently operating under a special license from the government, which allows them to continue to uh, fulfill fixtures and to pay staff. And they've also been given a, a lot of quite strict rules that they have to follow. I'll just get those up now that I've been keeping track of. Um, there's in, it, there, there are lots of things in here that are not particularly interesting. That, uh, but basically, one of, the, one of the slightly more interesting things is about travel. Because they've been given a budget uh, of uh, £20,000 per team per game <clears throat> to away games. That is not enough. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, the thing is, is that um, they have a game tonight against Lille in the Champions League. That's fine. That's been paid for already. Anything that has been paid for before the sanctions came in is still covered. So um, season tickets uh, holders can still go to games, but they can't sell new tickets. Oh, wow. Okay. So, wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So this is, uh, yeah. And th this, this is another little comment too when we're talking about the sports washing article because um, this contributed to the uh, atmosphere at the Newcastle game, which we'll get on to. Um, and, but the thing is, is that Ch Chelsea are tuning two up against Lille uh, at the moment. They will probably go through. If they have to go to Munich or mm. Or uh, who else is through? Um, uh, Madrid. Uh, there's a difficulty there. You know, Lille is not so far, but if they have to go to, if they have to go to Madrid and they have to pay for 50 people, they have to pay for security, they have to pay for, uh, you presume, business class flights. You can see the difficulty there. For yeah. 20,000 pounds, that's not very much. No, no. Uh, for home games, initially they were given 500,000 pounds per fixture per club team which would cover security, it would cover paying for the police, it would cover catering, it would cover, you know, all the things that go into having a home game. Uh, that's since been raised to £900,000 on appeal. Mm -hmm. um, so that's, that's uh, so the, what's to take away from that is that the government are in constant dialogue with Chelsea, they're talking to Chelsea all the time, Chelsea are lobbying them at every opportunity to get more, more concessions. And, um, the government do not want Chelsea to go to the wall. That is in no one's interest for Chelsea to go to the wall, really. Well, I mean, I, I wouldn't be so sad about it, but you know, <laughs> I, I don't care. But um, the, uh, it, they, the, the government do not want Chelsea to go to the wall for obvious reasons. They are considered to be a cultural asset. Uh, that's why they've been, they were given the license in the first place instead of just being, you know, flung, flung to the vultures. Uh, as far as a takeover is concerned from Abramovich, um, Abramovich uh, said that the net proceeds of the sale would go to charity for victims of the Ukraine war. Mm. It's not clear whether he means Russian victims or Ukrainian victims. Uh -huh. He hasn't spoken yet. Right. He, so, um, it's also not clear how he would make sure that that's the case because... Um, to put it bluntly, he can't control that money. He can't access that money. Yeah. So in, in reality, it's in the gift of the government, again, to make sure that the sale goes through. And they would have to give a, a sale license for that to happen, and they haven't done that yet. What's happening at the moment is that there are bids coming in. Uh, the deadline for bids at the moment is Friday. Uh, that is that's possibly going to be extended. There's also a deadline of, I think, May the 31st for any takeover to happen.
Mm-hmm. Now the thing is, Chelsea are a multi-billion pound club. That's not going to happen quickly. Okay, yeah, that is very interesting, and I think when we look forward, I mean, definitely it helps to show how th- these uh, this kind of like sanctions. And we talk about the sanctions, and they're very like highbrow. Oh, this is going to hurt the economic sector, etc. But it's very interesting to see how it will uh, impact um, some things that people do enjoy, like sport and things like that. Most yeah. definitely. And actually, you know, Chelsea fans have been, Chelsea fans are not the most well-informed bunch of people. That's not to tie them all with the same brush. But there have been lots of incidents over the last, you know, uh, 20 years of Chelsea fans making a bit of a a gist of themselves, shall we say. And um, there have been lots of chants. And I I mentioned this in the sports washing article, which maybe we should move on to Yeah, we can talk about that, yeah. where uh, they were chanting in support of Roman Abramovich. Mm. Uh, and this is not a Chelsea problem. This is also a Newcastle problem. It's also a Man City problem. But what, and I mentioned this in the article, what we're seeing from Chelsea now is not the worst example of sports washing in English football. Mm-hmm. It's not, you know, it's not even the worst example, you know, that we've seen in the last five years. But what it is, is a sport washing operation that is now at an end. Yeah. It's, you know, Abramovich is now leaving Chelsea. And so that means that we can kind of take stock of the whole thing. Whereas City and Paris Saint-Germain and Newcastle, who are the other big examples of this, they're still ongoing and they will be for some time because they are quite a lot bigger. Um, Yeah. So let's just maybe define what sport washing is for the audience. Yeah, so sports washing is essentially the, um, the use of sports and sporting success be that you know through funding it, through uh, hosting events, through any kind of uh, to, through any kind of sporting success or sporting sports in general, to uh, whitewash your reputation. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, that is of a, a, an organization or a state or of uh, anything you can name. If they are using sports to you know buff up their reputation a bit, they are sports washing. Yeah, I mean, that's really interesting because you do see that. I mean, just looking throughout history, you know, in the 30s, we had the Olympics in Germany. And that was an attempt by uh, that regime to kind of make the world think, you know, that their ideology was, in fact, legitimate. Um, We saw that with China, you could argue, you know, recently with with what happened in Beijing. So, yeah, that's fascinating. Um, I guess maybe could you just tell us a little bit about how that is going on right now? And how is people reacting to that? Well, I guess. Yeah. So, um, well, to, with specific regards to Chelsea and Newcastle, because they're kind of, yeah. So, um, well, to touch generally on sort of what sport, sports washing in football, there are th- there are three clubs at the moment who are owned by um, uh, golf states. Okay. They are, as I've named already, Newcastle, who are the most recent, Manchester City, and uh, Paris Saint Germain in France. Uh, they are all owned by golf states. They are all um, extremely wealthy clubs and they have all um, become or will become very dominant uh, teams in their leagues uh, as a result, uh, partly as a result of their wealth, but also in Man City's case in particular because they've planned it very well. I have to, I, as, as much as I do really not like Manchester City, they, I do have to give them credit for the way that they have planned uh their rise. Paris Saint-Germain less so, they're a bit of a mess and Newcastle needs to be careful that they go the, the city way and not the Paris Saint-Germain way. 
Well, thank you so much for coming on and speaking with us, Daniel, giving us some perspective on these things. It was really quite lovely to have you. Yeah, thank you very much. The Gaudi Podcast is a production of Gaudi Media. It is written, edited, and hosted by Josh Pluto-Pomaka. Special thanks to our guests on today's program, Ishti and Daniel. Just a reminder, we're still looking for our co-host to the podcast. If you're interested, please contact one of our editorial staff. Uh, I really do have a fun time doing this, but it would be great to speak to more people as well. Right. Well, thank you guys for listening, and have a lovely day.